0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jefferson Akers, and on today's episode, Millen and I are joined by Arnab Chatterjee. Arnab is currently the Senior Vice President of Product Acorn AI at Metadata Solutions. Prior to Metadata, Arnab served as an Associate Partner at McKinsey & Company and the Director of Business Development and Strategic Partnerships at Merck. Collegiately, Arnab received his undergraduate degree from the University of Michigan and his Master's in Health Administration and Master's in Public Administration from Cornell University. Today, we had a really fascinating chat with Arnab on the role of artificial intelligence in the clinical trial space, and we really hope you enjoy our conversation. As always, please feel free to leave us any feedback in the comment section. And with that, let's begin the episode. Good morning, Arnab. We're excited to have you on today. Um, to get us kicked off, as you know, across the industry, there's a pretty much go, a data revolution going on within healthcare. And with that in mind, what are some of the challenges associated with using artificial intelligence and machine learning in healthcare? And then also, how do you establish a threshold to data for data to avoid paralysis by analysis as healthcare is very, there's a very big human element to healthcare delivery?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me today, and, and excited to chat with you around a whole range of different issues. Um, so to start, you know, if we think about how AI has been, you know, kind of more assembling into our lives, it's been um, or becoming part of our lives, you know, as it relates to healthcare. Um, you know, we're seeing more and more applications in terms of um, different aspects of the healthcare system that have actually started to leverage AI. And that's not a necessarily a bad thing, you know, I mean, we're seeing it in drug discovery, we're seeing, um, you know, enhanced training sets that are being used for prediction models. Um, you know, we're seeing the actual, you know, AI as a doctor, um, you know, which is a bit of an overstep to say that, but it's, it's you know, how is it augmenting um, human intelligence to make better clinical decisions? And I think, you know, with all of the um, hope and, and aspiration for what AI tries to be, um, there's also some pretty serious challenges. And it usually actually starts with the data, you know a lot of it is around how do you reproduce these algorithms um, you know and, and building a prediction algorithm that can be deployed for example in a whole variety of different settings one that is um, using data that is representative of the population that you're trying to help um, one of the, the huge challenges is that you know is your data epidemiologically representative and can you replicate those findings you know, if you took a data set that was in Texas, it's going to look very different than that data set that's being used in, you know, Massachusetts or some other part of the country. And I I think what this means is that, you know, there is a very difficult um, challenge here in finding what is the ideal training set. You know, patients come and go and and we see thousands of of different symptoms. We see conditions very differently. Physicians, you know, uh, treat patients in very different ways how do we create a consistent and generalizable way to understand what that data actually means? And I think that's kind of one of the the big challenges is like, how do you, everyone wants to know what sort of the the holy grail data set to build, you know, AI algorithm and and, um, prediction models off of. I think, you know, one of the other real problems is, uh, again, a data related problem is, you know, when you are training these AI systems, um, you know, are they representatives of specific patient populations that I was just referring to, but what that does automatically is, you know, create inherent bias. And we're seeing now kind of, um, especially in the last year, um, you know, you've seen some pretty prolific publications by, you know, Ziad Obermeyer at Berkeley and others talking about the challenges of AI algorithms in, in bias in treating patients. And, you know, there's been some studies published in, in AAAS, um, you know, it's showing that black patients were assigned the same level of risk by an algorithm, but they were actually sicker than white patients and you know, bias happens because, um, you know, it's using uh, health costs as a measure for health needs. And, you know, these are, these are challenging things because you have these large swaths of data that you're using to build these algorithms. It's not necessarily representative. And, and you know, some of the most inherent um, problems are, are based on the fact that the data is not telling us the whole story. So if we use those as the basis of, of decision-making and then we realize we've made a, a pretty critical mistake, um, how do we kind of course correct? So that's we can do all the analysis that we want. Going back to your question, um, the threshold for what good looks like is ultimately going to be, you know, how much can we retrain these models so that they're truly representative of what we're trying to accomplish and who we're trying to serve? And then ultimately, you know, kind of pressure testing and, and creating trust and authenticity in that data to build something that we feel like, um, you know, can we trust the data? Can we trust the methodology? You know, can the, the model change and evolve to meet different population needs over time?
0: Thank you for that answer, Arnab. If I'm understanding you correctly, I've had kind of three main takeaways from your answer. The first is that the real value add of both artificial intelligence and machine learning and healthcare is to augment decision-making, but then also establishing a quote-unquote good data set is very ambiguous and nearly impossible to do. And ultimately, another hurdle you have to overcome from your standpoint is establishing any type of consistency as far as setting algorithms and formulas to do some predictive and prescriptive analytics.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Like, you know, I wanna make sure we're not totally deflating the idea here of of the potential of AI. Like we're seeing a lot, um, you know, around where it is doing things that are are really important, you know, like improving um, administrative workflows within clinical and hospital operations. Um, There's a lot AI is doing around, you know, imaging and diagnostics, virtual assistants, so, you know, there are plenty of examples to point to where we're saying that it is working and it's meaningfully changing certain things. It's the the examples that I was referring to where once, you know, you do something like AI as a doctor, once you use it to predict disease, um, you know, how accurate are we and, and how do we how do these models change as human biology changes, as the disease epidemiology changes, you know, and are we kind of getting to those data sets that will allow us to best you know, adapt the models to what's happening with the population that
2: it's trying to understand. of you have worked with a lot of life science clients in the past where, you know, you focused on helping them go to market and really accelerating their innovative capabilities. Can you talk about how machine learning and artificial intelligence could be used potentially to streamline this drug development process and even to a potential extent, simulate clinical trials without really needing people?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is an area I am pretty excited about. It's it's something that, you know, we spend a lot of time in my company thinking about. Um, you know, part of this is how do we start to better understand what aspects of drug development could be changed, right? And and there are different pieces of the drug development life cycle where AI is pretty deep, um, you know, so, you know, I think if you look at us, just take a step back for a second. Um, I think it was uh, probably last year uh, around this time. Um, there's this organization, you know, called Benchside that um, you know was capturing all of the work happening in AI within life sciences. And at the time, they were saying there are about 250 different companies that were using AI in life sciences, and that's pretty in, incredible to think about because you know there were some some pretty interesting examples of where you see how you know, the applications of AI are actually, um, you know, helping and improve the way that we think about um, everything from disease biology to, you know, actual clinical trial operations to getting a drug to launch. So, you know, for where I kind of focus and how I think about this problem, you know, for some time now, we've been following a lot of activity um, around, you know, what uh ai can do for improving just you know kind of hits on target um what the pharmaceutical industry or life science industry refers to as you know are we better kind of isolating which gene target or which specific area of uh you know the human body you want to interrogate and kind of what's the drug target of interest and you know there's been some examples of you know ways that we're kind of doing this from the very early stages of drug development you know, the, the most recent one as of, you know, just even a couple of weeks ago is the work that uh, Google's company, uh, DeepMind, did for, you know, the basics of drug development, which is protein folding. And this has been a problem that's been perplexing scientists for some time now. Um, and there's been competitions held for for several years on, you know, how do we best understand, you know, what's going to happen within protein folding and manipulation. And, you know, the, the team at, you um, at AlphaGo, which is the, the group that actually works on this, was able to kind of demystify the entire process and, and kind of create a revolutionary way of, of better understanding protein folding using deep learning algorithms. And that's a pretty significant step. I mean, they, they basically um, have kind of found a way to not only you know, unpack all of this information using these neural networks, they actually gave it away. They, they gave this entire you know, code base to scientists. They said, you know, go forth and build new companies and figure out what to do here. So I think those types of things are, are really interesting. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot around combining different types of data sets, whether it's coming from genomics or um, EMRs and, and trying to better understand if we can better you know lock down what is sort of a validated target. And there's plenty of companies, um, you know, Accentia and others that are working on just isolating, you know, a handful of different targets that drug companies can pursue aggressively. So I think there's a lot of, of what, we're, what we're seeing in that area. Um, you know, the other area that I'm excited about uh, where I feel like there is sort of a, a way to think about trial simulation is, you know, what's happening within, um, you know, basically building out uh, what are called external control arms. So you have um, you know, in, a, in a clinical trial a, an experimental arm, which is the population that gets treated, and then you have the control arm. And what we're saying here is that um, you know, if you're able to take very, very rich patient level data that already exists for a patient population, and you can kind of hand pick, you know, which patients um, are gonna meet the criteria of a trial you can basically through biostatistical methods, um, not even AI, but like uh, biostats and other data science methods, including AI, statistically match the characteristics of those patients to the ones that you're trying to find within a target trial. And this is super powerful because if you can imagine using data to replace patients or even augment a control arm and and what you're doing there is saving years of, of clinical trial enrollment time or recruitment time, you know, what these these synthetic controls and these external controls, um, as they're called, I mean, they're they're really, really important in areas like rare disease, um, where you see a lot of patient dropout or where it's really hard to recruit patients. Um, it's also really interesting, you know, during an area like a, a time like COVID, where all of your hospitals are just kind of slammed by COVID patients and you just have these huge backlogs um, in, in trial enrollment. So creating, you know, synthetic patient populations, creating um, the ability to build synthetic control arms is a really um, powerful use of different you know, data science techniques and, and biostatistical techniques and, and patient-level data. So those are a few areas where I think you're seeing real life sciences investment and development um, You know, kind of the, the way that AI is sort of transforming that part of the industry.
2: Got it. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it seems like from a drug development component, there's a, a pretty big focus with a lot of companies to you know, isolate specific gene targets and focus on specific therapeutic areas of interest using deep learning algorithms. Um, and one example that you gave was with DeepMind and focusing specifically on protein folding. And then focusing on the clinical trial part, one area is the synthetic po- patient population using these external control arms, which as you mentioned, can really save a lot of time to recruit patients. You know, save on costs, and I imagine there, to a certain extent. Do you, do you see a possibility to even um, better track these patients over a longitudinal period of time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's another piece of all this. Is you know, if you have enough data, and by enough, I mean you know, a, a longitudinal record of a patient's events, um, you know, capturing them in and out of hospitals, in and out of different insurance companies, um, in and out of different labs, uh, and being able to track them from the trial into what's called the real world, which is, um, you know, when they're actually outside of a clinical trial setting. I mean, that entire idea of of having sort of the the golden patient record is is something that I think you know, would change the whole game for how a lot of these AI models are actually being used because you have, you know, a comprehensive and, and very thorough way of looking at the patient population. And I think that's um, certainly an aspiration. You know, there, there are companies like mine that are, are working on kind of linking disparate pieces of data together to create this, you know, holy, you know, grail again, uh, you know, a patient record that kind of encompasses an entire healthcare history, um, you know, from start to finish.
2: Got it. So then Arna, focusing a little bit more on the drug development process as well as for clinical trials, I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think are the biggest factors that really contribute to a slow delayed timeline that has a lot of exceeding costs?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many, you know, different aspects of, you um, you know, ways to kind of to to think about this, right, and, and there's been a number of different studies that have started to pinpoint, you know, why the drug development cycle is so long, and why does it take such a long time for us to see an availability of new drugs and biological products. You know, I will say that, um, you know, even to date, um, I believe the FDA has already approved uh, 36 different products this year, which is pretty good, you know, and, you know, in previous years, it's been in the high 40s. So we're on track to see something similar to that, um, you know, in, in the peak year. So from a regulatory perspective, I think, you know, we're seeing a, a point in time where there's just a lot of innovative things that are happening in drug development um you're seeing kind of an advent of of really exciting growth in areas like cell and gene therapies you know immuno-oncology um you know obviously the the rna and mrna world has kind of flipped um the script on like how we're seeing um new drugs come to market so i think with that disclaimer there is a lot happening uh, you know in terms of the innovation side of drug development now, going back to your question, like why is it still slow and why is it still costly? Um, you know, drug failure rates are still pretty high. You know, they can be as high as ninety plus percent, and we know that the average time to market, you know, is is ten to twelve plus years. Um, R and D costs have continued to to double. You know, between I think the early two thousands and where we are right now, so we have a world where there's sort of two things that are happening. Um, you know, productivity is is challenging within, especially the large pharmacos. Um, and once a drug kind of gets to market, you have to think about the pricing and, and how do you make it more affordable? How do you get it to more patients? So there's sort of a, you know, a really big inflection point happening with the pharmaceutical industry right now. In parallel, you also are seeing sort of the biggest biotech boom in recent memory. And that is creating a whole different level of innovation that I was just referring to. Fundamentally though, we still see a lot of the same challenges around failures and and the things that kind of continuously plague the the industry are the basic questions around how you design a trial. So on the clinical side, and there's sort of two angles to this, one's clinical and one's operational. But on the clinical side, you you see different questions around which study endpoints um, really showed an adequate and meaningful clinical effect. Right. And, and oftentimes uh, drugs fail uh, or the FDA or the EMA, um, the Europeans Medicine Authority will say, no, you didn't pick the right study endpoint um, to show that there were, the drug was safe or efficacious. Um, similarly, you know, the dosing is a really critical um, challenge and there's a lot of uncertainty around dose selection. Um, there are challenges around, um, you know, can you create consistency between different study sites uh, in a clinical trial? And then ultimately, the the key thing you have to prove with any drug is that is it as efficacious or more efficacious when it's compared to the standard of care, meaning what's already out there. And you know this is basically kind of the running list of of why drugs fail clinically. On the operational side, um, there's a bunch of different reasons. You know, getting your trials set up um, and, and finding the right number of sites and finding the right investigators to run the trial. There are still so many issues with, you know, kind of going from different hospital to different hospital, getting physicians educated around the trial itself, getting the trial infrastructure, meaning all of the data capture tools necessary for the the physician investigator to actually run the trial. There's just still a very challenging world of of clinical trial operations that slows things down. And, And going back to my COVID example, this is where, you know, the entire history, uh, industry could have taken a, a six to 18 month um, bounce back because, you know, every hospital was just kind of slammed with COVID patients and they were unable to see patients for oncology trials or for rare disease trials. So, you know, there's two angles to why there's still costly and slow um, processes that kind of plague the industry and, and you know, hopefully that
2: encompasses um, some of the major problems. No, absolutely. So it seems like from my understanding, you've highlighted two key areas, which is clinical and operational. And in clinical, you sort of mentioned that, you know, one is choosing the right safety and choosing the right study endpoints, you know, problems with dosing and making sure you have the right dose, um, site consistency, and then obviously making sure that, you know, your drug is efficacious compared to the current standard of care. And then on the operational side, you mentioned you know choosing the number of sites, the number of investigators, uh, physician education, and then having the proper data infrastructure to be able to handle that as well. Um, so I wanna shift the focus a little bit and you know talk more about your work with metadata and specifically with Acorn AI. Can you expand on this a little bit more? What, what are you currently doing and how exactly is it revolutionizing the way clinical trials are conducted?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to start with um kind of you know, what metadata is and, and does, and then get into what um, my team does and what, uh, what the entity that I, I work for and, and help run called Acorn does. So uh, metadata is a, a company that's been around for over 20 years. Um, it's uh, recently been acquired by a larger um, simulation company and modeling company called Desso Systems, uh, which is based out of uh, Paris and, and Waltham, Massachusetts. And um, you know, part of how metadata kind of came to existence was really around um, you know the, the '90s when SaaS companies were trying to, were basically coming into their own, and and there was sort of a revolution around data being captured in the cloud. And um, the founders of the company, um, Tarek Sharif and Glenn DeVries, basically thought, well, why don't we you know find a way to store a clinical trial data in the cloud? So it was really the first of its kind SaaS business that um, you know put clinical trial data into a, a form where it was um, stored and captured and and better utilized. Um, you know, basically uh, creating a clinical data management platform um, for all things clinical trials. And you know, Medidata um, currently serves over fifty percent of the world's clinical trials. So it's it's a pretty large, sizable business, kind of the largest um, of its kind, I think, as it relates to what it does. And you know, about three years ago, um, one of the underlying, you know, things that, uh, you know, really came, that really caused ACORN to kind of come into, its, uh, into existence was um, for about the last 12 years, you know, metadata has um, been working with the companies that it serves, which includes pharmaceutical companies and medical centers um, and med device companies to um, basically create an agreement where it can access the underlying clinical trial data. And uh, it's part of a larger program that it's kind of pioneered within the industry called um, give to get where companies can give clinical trial data, too many data, as they do anyway, but we can repurpose and de-identify that data um, and, and allow other companies to use it. And the goal being we preserve you know, the entire IP and any sort of patient ID, but we also um, you know allow everyone to participate in a much larger data sharing program. So this data set is actually pretty huge right now. It's about 7 million patients. Um, it, it encompasses 23,000 clinical trials. and it's, uh, you know, kind of comprised of all of the data from the different companies that metadata works with, which is about 1,700 companies total now. So this data set, you know, was really sort of the light bulb that um, spurred Acorn, which is um, you know the, the company I helped start uh, within metadata. And about three years ago, um, the founders decided that they wanted to create a separate data science company leveraging this 7 million patient database. And you know, this is data right now that we manage on behalf of the, the companies we work with, but we have this access right to help improve clinical trial development and, and clinical trial launch. And our vision is that if we can take this clinical trial data set and repurpose it so that we're doing things like trial simulation or better predicting what's going to happen operationally or build synthetic control arms we can basically you know kind of transform the way that clinical trials are run right now and take on that problem that you were just describing the whole you know slow and costly drug development process because we have we have effectively 800 billion dollars worth of you know clinical development investment that we're sitting on Um, That's the the number that we kind of came to um, a conclusion, you know, a couple months ago that this is a massive amount of of development work that's happened over metadata's existence in time. And we're sitting on all of this information. Why can't we use it to build smarter and more effective clinical trials? So, you know, with an ACORN, we kind of focus on three distinct areas. Um, One of them is focused on clinical trial operations. And can we repurpose this historical operational data? Data we sit on, you know, which which captures everything from you know how many patients enrolled and which sites they enrolled in and and how do we know when they enrolled? and you know all of these kind of very challenging operational questions. we we have all of that information and we can build smarter ways to um, predict you know what's the best site to go to and which you know physician investigators you should work with. And then we have a clinical side of the business that's focused on creating evidence. Um, and this goes back to some of the challenges around, you know, how do you know what's a good study endpoint? And how do you know what is a, um, what is a representative you know, criteria, uh, inclusion or exclusion criteria that you're using for your clinical trial? You know, all of these very basic but really fundamental questions around the, the basics of designing a clinical trial protocol. If we can take historical clinical trial data and sharpen and validate and confirm all of these assumptions that, um, you know, the, the R&D executives have, you know we could really you know move this process along faster. We can get FDA approval sooner. We can use historical trial data as the basis for something like a synthetic control arm. So that's the second part of the business, the clinical side. The third part of our business is focused on um, getting a drug to launch and and we really focus on right before a drug hits the market, um, you know what's called kind of the the phase three to launch process. And here we manage a lot of the data around just getting the launch process right and, and making sure that we understand the market dynamics and we understand how the drug is gonna perform compared to other drugs, um, basically a, a data management platform to support drug launch. So our, our sweet spot is really tackling operations, clinical development, and then that near launch period, right right as soon as the phase three is approved. So that's basically what Acorn does. It's, it's really kind of the, the um the reason we we decided to create this company and acorn is um about 300 people right now it's uh, really grown fast over the last three years that we've been around and you know we are um kind of rapidly working towards um you know fixing some of these problems that, that i was describing earlier
2: so i'm really interested to hear more about this second point that you talked about which was your your focus on clinic you know Obtaining a representative criteria for your data sets. And you talked a little bit about obtaining historical clinical trial data. And this was one of the first things that stuck out to me when I was looking at Acorn AI and their integrated evidence platform. So, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, what are some of the considerations in attempting to connect this historical clinical trial data with real world data to obtain these important insights? And how exactly do you repurpose and you know, de-identify some of these data sets that you're receiving from companies in attempting to build build this out?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So let me start by kind of defining two different types of data sets that exist in the world. So the clinical trial data set is kind of its own beast. It is a tightly controlled set of parameters that are really sharply defined because it's meant to characterize you know how patients are being treated on an experimental therapy in this clinical trial setting. So that's the data that metadata captures um, You know, through its through its platform and it's um, effectively called a, a case report form where investigators fill out all of this information around patients uh, for a specific clinical trial. And now, you know, we are covering about twenty-three thousand of those trials, and we have, um, you know, the ability to kind of see across that entire landscape. We can isolate certain trials and better understand what happened within that trial itself, and that's the trial world. Now, after the trial ends, patients kind of go back, and they're in a really messy, wild west healthcare environment. Um, they might go to Mass General Hospital, but then the following week, they might end up at the Brigham. Um, they might then, you know, go to Blue Cross Blue Shield as an insurer, but then they might switch jobs and they might go to United Healthcare, right? There's sort of a, a whole different um, set of different types of data that emerge from claims records, from electronic medical records, um, from labs when you go to Quest or LabCorp, um, you know, and that's, that's a different type of data source that is rapidly growing in liqui- liquidity as we're able to access more of it. And, you know, it kind of presents a lot of the potential around how do we better understand patient populations at scale and that's, that's what's called the real world. Um, So I defined kind of the trial side and the real world side. Now, you know, our aspiration is, you know, if we're able to better connect these two things together for an individual patient, you know, we'll have the entirety of the trial record. And then we'll better be able to understand what's happening to that patient in the real world after they get out of the clinical trial. So I'll talk a bit more about like this idea of linking and what's called tokenizing data sets so that you know if you have Melind who exists, you know, and he went through a clinical trial and then he uh, you know emerged in the real world, can we still follow Melind throughout the process where we know if the drug that he was um, you know given is actually working, if it's actually efficacious, if it's actually safe? And that's like a whole different um, part of the the world that we're creating. We're actually trying to build that data set that doesn't exist right now. So that's really a core part of what Acorn's doing. One of the things that I'll go back to is, how do you make sense of this data? Um, Each clinical trial is run in its own way, Um, but a lot of the things around how data sets are captured and and how you make sense of it comes down to a, a process called data standardization. And what that means is you're effectively looking across a series of different trials. Let's say you want to take five breast cancer trials and you want to kind of take that data set and make sense of it. And you want to take all the patients that existed within those trials and make sense of those subpopulations. You effectively can take data. You can standardize it, meaning you look across the different variables. You look at how those variables were measured and how they were captured. And you create consistency. You you basically filter out the ones that don't make sense, and you kind of come back to a core population of patients across those five you know hypothetical trials for breast cancer. And you say like, this is the core data set I'm going to be working with. It all has, you know, a consistent amount of capture for a specific biomarker, for uh, a concomitant medication. It has all the ethnic uh, or the demographic and ethnic and and gender and all the relevant pieces of information I would want. It has um, kind of the, 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 the different disease scoring metrics that I would require. Basically, you're, you're trying to capture sort of the, the baseline characteristics of those trials that are most relevant to the question that you're trying to answer. And for every single question that we're trying to tackle, like somebody could say, you know, help me predict which patients are more likely to get a certain type of breast cancer, for example. We would go back to our trial data set. We would identify which trials we think are most germane to answering that question. Based on what the you know the 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 company might be asking us, or what what the key question is, um, you know, are they interested in a biomarker of interest? Are they interested in you know patients kind of rapidly transitioning from one therapy to another? Basically, you're trying to like extract as much value out of this core data set by creating a level of standardization that makes it very apples to apples, and then you're able to
2: actually use it. Got it. So it seems like if I'm understanding this correctly, you know, you first started off by talking about two different types of data sets, which is, you know, one is the clinical trial data set, and then the second is the real world data set. And in an attempt to link both of these data sets together for a specific patient, the key component you're focusing here is data standardization, where you're essentially taking, you know, multiple different clinical trials and all these different patient populations finding all the measurements and specific variables that are consistent across these trials and taking out the the data with excess noise and variables that don't really make sense and then sort of using that to link these these both of these data sets together yeah that's
1: exactly right right like you're you're taking an aggregated and standardized data set you know composed of all of these different clinical trials and it's built according to certain criteria right so You know at at the same time we use a lot of filters um you know within metadata to make sure that the data is robust that the source data is you know exactly the the core source of information that we're looking for we validate it against other sources like clinicaltrials.gov and and basically we we have kind of fine-tuned the art of you know basically creating the ideal study and subject selection that will allow us to use the
2: data most effectively Got it, okay. So with this electronic data capture and clinical database management tools that metadata has, what is your strategic vision in the next five to 10 years? What is the company hoping to achieve and what impact are you hoping to have on the industry?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I'm gonna go back to sort of one of the the core ACORN um, bets that we're making, you know, and and that's really around this um, linked data set. So the hypothesis is that, you know, because we have these two distinct and disparate data worlds, um, you know, what can metadata do as the company that sits on over 50% of the world's clinical trials, if we're able to capture a patient at the point where they are enrolled in a clinical trial and follow them in and out of the trial, but also in and out of different healthcare systems for the duration of, of, you know, their existence. Um, that is a pretty compelling data set that doesn't exist in the world right now. And there are companies that, you know, we're working with, um, you know, and we've partnered with that allow us to tap into these huge marketplaces of of real world data. Um, Companies like Health Verity and DataVant and others that, you know, have started to basically um, aggregate all of the different data sources that might exist between the different data companies that provide them. And there's a lot of ways to access this data now. And what these companies that I mentioned are doing are basically creating marketplaces that allow you to connect the real world data. So they've built um, different tools and and what's called a a data encryption process called tokenization that allows you to connect um, a, a, a unique person's claim record with their electronic medical record, with their lab record, and even with their genomic record. And that creates kind of like the master patient record for that individual person. And now while they're working on the real world side, we feel like we can connect that to the clinical trial side so that we know you know exactly what happens to any patient within the trial. Why shouldn't we be able to also why shouldn't we be able to also understand what happens to a patient after the trial? So this data set that we want to create where we're kind of breaking the model of, of creating disparate data and, and just focusing on one universal data set for a patient. That's something that we're working on and, and kind of trying to change the model for how not only do we capture and collect that data, but, you know, how do we use that data? What do, we, what do we know about a patient in a trial? And then how does it matter for, you know, post-market safety surveillance, which is, you know, a way of talking about after a goes to launch, what are the safety events that we're seeing? You know, how do you mitigate safety risk by understanding what's happening to these patients in real world settings versus what happened to them in the trial? There's a whole different swath of of analysis and um, you can kind of upend the entire system right now as it speaks to like, you know, what you can do with a data set like that. Um, Everything from from prediction to, you know, just better monitoring safety, I think, and even defending drug pricing. You know, you can better say my drug was safe in the trial. It was effective in the trial and now it's effective in the real world. And that's why we think it should be priced a certain way. We think that this could be a a revolutionary data set. So that's kind of a, a key focus for us. And then for metadata more broadly, you know, as it'll continue to sort of be a clinical data management platform that, you know, continues to serve all 1,700 of our customers, you know, perform a, a variety of clinical and operational data tasks. Um, but metadata's ecosystem is is growing and, and kind of moving more into certain areas. Um, so one area that, you know, that we're excited about is sort of the patient interface and, and you know, this was something that really got jump started during COVID. But you know, we built out a whole patient cloud environment that allows us to interface with the patient, capture patient-level data, you know, better understand how hospital visits are going. Be, be, being sort of a a a way for us to improve the relationship between the patient and their own data, and then how they're interfacing with um, you know the this, the hospital system. And this patient cloud is is sort of a a way for us to tie you know, what was in the clinical trial with what we're seeing, um, is sort of the unique patient experience when they go in and out of the trial. And so that's, that's sort of one area where we're pretty excited about. The other area is, um, you know, around how we're seeing the whole idea of decentralized trials. Um, one other thing that happened during COVID was patients don't have to go to the hospital now to actually enroll in a clinical trial. And there's a lot happening around, um, what's called decentralized clinical trials um, trials, as you guys might have heard. And this idea is, you know, rooted in the fact that technology and data capture improved so significantly that, you know, virtual visits and different interfaces for communicating with providers will allow you to participate in clinical trials. And, you know, this is actually a really important problem to solve because clinical trial enrollment is, is not great. Um, you know, for, for certain populations, you're only capturing a very small subset of what you would need um, to create a truly heterogeneous population for a clinical trial. And, you know, we're missing a lot of people. So if you can expand access, if you can create the tool systems to capture data remotely, if you can improve the visit experience, if you can do this all remotely, you know, decentralized clinical trials are, are going to be a pretty critical part of our future as we, as we get older and as we start to see, um, you know,
2: how we can kind of enhance the patient experience for, for that side of the world. Wow. Arnab, thank you for providing such a comprehensive overview of the company, as well as what you're doing within Acorn AI. I am super excited to see what you guys do in the next couple of years, because there is a really, really big potential here to change the entire landscape of clinical trials on the drug development process. And I will definitely be keeping my eyes on uh, some of the innovations that you guys continue to come up with in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, we're excited. Thank you.
0: Arnab, you had previously worked under the Obama administration as an advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services. Can you touch briefly on where you saw areas for data security improvement in the U.S. healthcare system?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, you know, was a a fascinating time to be part of um, healthcare policy change. And I think, um, you know, part of my role when I was there was uh, working under um, the Chief Technology Officer of Health and Human Services, um, you know, working uh, closely with the Obama administration to figure out what can we do to kind of liquidate a lot of the data that the government sits on um, and put it in the hands of inventors and entrepreneurs and scientists and, you know, startups. And you know, one of the main activities was around data liquidity and creating a whole um, architecture and platform uh, called Data.gov to be able to share that data more broadly. And this is less around data security and more around what we called data evangelization, um, being able to just take valuable information and and put that into the world. And the the precursors for this, sort of the analogies for this, um, you know, back in the Back in the '70s and and, and 1960s, um, you know, the government released all of the weather data that existed um, from NOAA, from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and that created the way for companies to create companies like Weather.com and take all of this publicly available weather data um, to better understand, you know, what's happening with with you know different patterns in in weather behavior. And similarly, you know, something followed around um, what what happened with the release of maps and and different geography and different types of information from transportation. And that paved the way for things like Google Maps and Yahoo Maps and you know those types of companies. And the idea during the time that I was there in the administration was, why can't we do this for healthcare data and release that information? So if you go to data.gov and you go to the healthcare section, you'll see all of this information from Medicare and from Medicaid that they've released to the public in order to one, create transparency, but two, also put that into the hands of, of academics and research groups and better understand like what's really happening from a cost perspective, from utilization perspective, from a safety perspective. And it's you know not only Medicare, Medicaid, the FDA is releasing information, the NIH is releasing information. So that was a key you know, part of the work that I was there. Um, the other part of what I did was, um, you know, around an initiative called Blue Button. And this is interesting because this was more about data transparency as well. It's, it's, um, you know, basically what we did and the first version of Blue Button was really meant to allow, um, you know, different beneficiaries of, of Medicare to access their data. And, you know, the blue button service um, basically became what's called an API. It's a, an application programming interface, um, which is a, a friendly way to allow different Medicare beneficiaries to understand their claims data more effectively to access that data. So this goes back now about 11 years. The origins of blue button started actually in the VA. And, you know, at that time, there was about a million people that were able to, you um, or since that time, we've had about a million people who can now access their information you know, using different portals that the government provides. But the whole idea behind this was that patients should have access to understand their own healthcare data. And that seems like a fundamentally obvious thing, but you know, it's, it's something that you know we're trying to create a, a way to improve um, a really challenging problem within the industry called data interoperability. And what that basically means is, you know, how do we take these massive amounts of information that are coming from text files and PDFs and, you know, converting that data into something reusable for analysis, providing it to the hands of patients where they can literally go and click on a blue button on a a government portal and access their medical record. And anybody who's gone into the healthcare system knows that it's like no easy task to be able to access healthcare data. So, you know, at the time there was this entire concept of, you know, unleashing the power of personal health data and why we care about that, you know, the idea and still the the spirit of that idea is rooted in the fact that we want to be able to provide this data into the hands of, you know, the patients because it belongs to them. It, at its core, it is something that is unique to that patient. So, you know, Medicare is, is, you um, you know, a 50 million plus population, you know, it serves 50 million Americans. And it's, you know, being able to navigate this challenge of, of maintaining medical records, understanding which providers are um, seeing your medical history, what is your care regimen, you know, working to create this API that allows Medicare claims data um, to be accessible was like a huge, I think, win, um, you know, for patient uh, data transparency.
0: I think you summarized very well towards the end of your answer how kind of data sharing and interoperability are two very hot topics in healthcare currently, but nonetheless, it was interesting to hear not only how you borrowed through other industries using things like NOAA, but also how data sharing and interoperability kind of built its foundation and has led into where it is now. For our next question, I want to pivot a little bit to talk about your time with Merck. During your time with Merck, you were really involved with ventures and partnerships. And from the perspectives of a life sciences company, can you touch on what are some of the table stakes criteria another entity must have to be considered an attractive partner?
1: Yeah, and, and I think it's important to kind of caveat where, the what perspective I was kind of utilizing at that time. So, you know, at Merck, I sat within an organization that was focused on health economics research and and building the body of evidence to support drug pricing, to support the safety and the efficacy of drugs. Um, There's a separate part of pharmaceutical companies that's really focused on, you know, what's called business development and licensing. Um, And that is uh, around, you know, how do you kind of effectively acquire companies for access to a novel molecule, for example. And you know, that's a slightly different type of business development that happens within pharma. So I'll focus on the former. Um, I have a lot of familiarity with the latter as well. But for the purposes of this discussion, what we were doing at Merck at that time was, you know, basically uh, this was sort of the the time where non real where non-clinical trial data, like the real world data, was really coming into fashion. Um, you know, there, there was a time where people didn't even know what to do with this type of stuff. And, and they were just like, what's an EMR? Like, how am I going to use this to support research? Uh, why is this valuable? And is it even trustworthy? And at Merck, I think, you know, we stood up a team that was dedicated to developing partnerships with different organizations that could provide access to completely unique sources of data that we hadn't seen at Merck before. And you have to remember at this time, like Merck was focused on a few different therapeutic areas that were really important. Um, Merck really pioneered the oncology boom and Merck really was focused in, in a few areas like diabetes and cardiovascular at the time. So our job was to find where can we find the richest amount of information that exists and which partnerships and which companies will enable us to access that. And this was a great education for me because it allowed us to see the entire healthcare landscape. Um, you know, We worked with companies like academic medical centers that would allow us to <clears throat> access their data for research purposes. Um, you know, we worked uh, with—I'll give you a really almost comical example, but one that was really cool. Um, Boston Children's Hospital has a really, really cool um, lab that's focused on social media research, and there's there's some incredible disease epidemiologists there that worked with us to access data from Twitter. And we use that data from Twitter to better understand sleep patterns. Um, You know what patients were saying about their insomnia and how do we characterize insomnia more clinically based on at the time what was sort of a digital patient reported outcome. Um, You know people would say that they couldn't sleep that they were they took Ambien that all of these different things came up and it was a a great publication that we did um, alongside our colleagues there. And you know what the the point of it is that it was just a different way to look at different different types of data and prove the scientific merit of that information. Um, one of the companies that you guys are probably familiar with, uh, Flatiron Health, you know, really changed the oncology data landscape. And we were amongst the first companies, Merck was amongst the first companies at the time to work with this very small startup. This was back in 2016 to access data that Flatiron was procuring from, uh, from their medical records and from the, companies that, uh, the hospitals that they worked with. So, you know, there was the Googles of the world. There was these small academic or these small startups. There were medical centers. There were companies like 23andMe where we had a great collaboration on genomic data. What we looked for at the end of the day was, you know, can you help us identify a data set or a patient population that we can better understand and then better create a body of research and evidence around? Um, A lot of what my team did was create what are called value dossiers. And those are documents that go to insurance companies. They're documents that go to regulatory bodies. Um, They go to different countries uh, and and sort of the health authorities of those countries. And what you're basically saying is that here's everything we know about a patient population. And how do we treat those patients more effectively? Or how big is the addressable population for which our drug can be effective and useful? And these value dossiers are, you know, tens of maybe even hundreds of publications long. And they sort of comprise a whole book of evidence that you're using to support and, and justify and defend the value of your drug. So that's sort of how we thought about the partnerships. We, we thought a lot about, you know, publications. We thought a lot about scientific merits. We thought a lot about, you know, kind of credibility. We kind of use the lens of, you know, are they really augmenting different technology and skill sets that we don't have? Um, you know, some of these companies brought different uh, machine learning and, and, you know, natural language processing techniques to the table with their data. So there was sort of a a multi-angle perspective for what we thought was like a a good way to to partner and work with these guys.
0: Now, a point well taken on the variety of criteria you evaluated and also the scope of your role in evaluating partners. But if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the most significant things you'd look at is how a potential partner could bring data full circle, not only in terms of having a, a proper data set, but also in terms of making that data set actionable and being able to drive some type of result with the data.
1: Yeah, that's
0: exactly right. Perfect. Now I want to switch gears a little bit and get into the professional development section of our conversation. You received both your master's in health administration and master's in public administration from Cornell University. And typically students who receive these degrees go into hospital administration. Can you talk about what are some of the early actions and steps you took to kind of place your career trajectory more towards the health tech and life sciences space?
1: Sure. So, you know, I think I think that that paradigm is changing too. Um, you know, within MHA programs um, across the country, partially because um, you know, over the time that I um, graduated into where I am right now, um, technology and data and analytics have just become sort of a, a ubiquitous part of life. You know, they're kind of embedded in all aspects of the healthcare industry. Um, it used, it's always been sort of a, a side project, and now it's kind of critically part of the way that um, you know executives make decisions. People have created you know separate business units that are dedicated to you know the the data science part of of the business. And I think um, you know what I've sort of learned is that there's there's a few kind of takeo- big takeaways. Like one, you know, I sort of landed in the pharmaceutical side of the business, um, you know based on you know folks I followed uh from previous jobs and and when i was in the government I, I you know had a chance to work with mentors um you know who ended up kind of moving over to merck and and asked me to join them and it was a fortunate experience because i love the entire world of, of drug development and, and seeing what it takes to actually make a drug um it's, it's sort of kind of where i found my my passion and where i'm most interested in um you know i think you know as you kind of think through different career options like it's not always gonna be a linear path. And and if it is, it it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So for me, kind of moving in and out of consulting and moving in and out of different aspects of pharma um, kind of helped shape my perspective. Uh, You know, where I thought I landed was, you know, having the chance to consult for large technology companies when I was at McKinsey and being able to work with, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and the apples of the world really kind of helped me understand like where I see, Different aspects of data science and machine learning and AI kind of changing the healthcare system. And, you know, where I wanted to focus on was, you know, in the, the pharmaceutical and specifically within the drug development side of that business. Um, you know, and I, I think just putting yourselves in a position to better understand where you think you're most passionate about fixing the problem um, wherever it exists within the healthcare industry, and then kind of, you know, working through a variety of different environments, just getting exposure to a variety of different companies. You know, if you can kind of see the threads tying together, you know, between the different experiences, you can kind of get more focused on where you think you want to end up. So I I think, you know, the first job out of, you know, an MHA program, for example, um, could be a hospital administrative fellowship, it could be a consulting gig, um, but don't make that seem like it's the only option. There are, you know, dozens of different um, ways to kind of enter the healthcare industry now. It doesn't have to make total sense, but what you'll realize is that you're gaining a lot more knowledge about a certain sector or a certain business um, within the healthcare industry. And then you can use that to kind of refine. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of my decision-making came back to um, kind of the mentors and the people I worked with that helped shape, uh, you know, where I am right now.
0: Arnab, you made a very strong point that I think is really valuable to our listeners and that identifying what you're truly passionate about could be a little bit of a longer term process, but through each professional environment you move through, there are certain experiences you can gain that will help you once you identify your passion in terms of pursuing it and having a kind of a foundation to build on. Our last question for the day is centered around On leadership, I think a recurring theme from this conversation is that you have really diverse work experience. And within the variety of work settings you've been fortunate to be employed in, what are some of the lessons on leadership and people management that you've been able to take with you and apply at Metadata and plan to apply for the rest of your career?
1: Yeah, I I love this question because I think it's it's something that's like evolving, you know, for me. you know, and, and I think for each job um you know that I've been in, uh, you know, I've kind of picked up different um lessons along the way, you know, and, and some of the important ones are, you know, if you kind of you know find yourself naturally gravitating towards an idea or a person, you know, don't don't try to fight that. Like you should just allow that to happen and kind of see where it takes you. I think, you know, going back to what I was saying in my last um answer, like I think, you know, if you think you're kind of truly engrossed by you know, a person or their ideas or kind of where you see a, t- a trend going, you know, I think that's really, um, you know, that's really important to kind of follow that that gut instinct. And, and you know, that's going to be the closest you'll ever understand um, as to like what you really want to do. You know, and I think, you know, some of the other stuff is, um, I think spending time in different environments just helps you appreciate, you know, different ways that the system is broken um, as you go through your career. So, as an example, like if you're presented with the opportunity, I think it really helps to spend some time serve, serving in some form of government. Um, you know, it really gives you an idea of what it takes to move a really large machine, but also one that you know serves you know tens of millions of people. And and how do you kind of bring policy to life? How do you bring um, you know different ideas into action? It's 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 easy to poke holes on the outside. It's really hard to move the machinery on the inside. And you know, I think that's another important takeaway is like kind of try to put yourself into a, a place where you're really understanding that. Um, the other thing I, I kind of always recommend is sort of try to be part of different, um, different movements that take place within the healthcare industry. So the movements for me, you know, when I was at Merck, it was the immuno-oncology boom. And I, I didn't purposely put myself there, but I was along for the ride and I was able to see the transformation of oncology, for example, within our industry, which I'll never forget. Um, you know, within uh, my government experience, it was around um, the Affordable Care Act and and being there, you know, when when it was signed and being there as part of, you know, why I thought that was the most transformational piece of legislation that's ever been written, um, you know, for the healthcare industry, like just even having a, a small role and a seat at the table for something like that was something, you know, I think that was just really fundamental how I think about the world today. So my, my lessons are less around, um, you know, it's more learnings that I feel like I'd, I'd share with, with the listeners here. I mean, the one other thing is, um, you know, always try to work with people who are smarter than you. Um, you know, I think you kind of, as a leader, realize that you're not going to be able to figure out everything on your own. And you should always work to to hire and recruit smart people, because they really have kind of an enthusiasm and and sort of a mindset that's um, different than yours, and 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 that's a good thing, you know, you shouldn't feel intimidated or threatened by that. You should always try to aspire to to learn as much as you can from different people, no matter how junior they may be. Um, and, you know, I find myself learning from analysts, you know, we've we've brought, you know, from college, I find myself learning from, you know, my boss right now, obviously, like, I think there's sort of a, a, a lot to say around just surrounding yourself by, uh, surrounding yourself with really smart people can kind of change your entire perspective very quickly, right? And you learn that you learn how to work hard, you learn how to intellectually challenge yourself. You learn that it's, it's really around, um, you know, surrounding yourself around A players. And that that's something I can't understate the importance of.
0: Arnav, from both Bill and myself and our listeners, thank you for joining us. You are a wealth of information, not only from an industry standpoint, but it's really been helpful to hear how your open-mindedness and just level of flexibility from a career standpoint, has been able to catapult you to where you are now. So on behalf of all of our listeners and Miller and myself, again, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure. And, and thank you guys for the opportunity. I really enjoyed talking with you.
0: All right. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us as always. And please feel free to like and subscribe to the podcast and also leave us any feedback in the comment section. Until the next episode, take care.